0: a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor Justin
1: Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Wednesday, September 20th, 2023 edition. I'm Justin Klein, and I'm excited for this hour with you, help guide you through this complex market environment, economic environments, and there's a lot of headlines and hyperbole that's out there, but our job is to focus on the facts on the ground to help you make the most of your capital, both by protecting it from bad decisions, could just be bad investments, fraud, et etc, but also helping you find those right opportunities and identifying those opportunities and both of those aspects of growing your money take discipline and they take perspective and that's what I'm here to help with is give you some perspective of over 20-plus years of investment experience, which means I've dealt with uh, multiple recessions and downturns as well as booms, and I know the pitfalls that people fall prey to on, in both environments and in between. So that's the, the goal here, is to give you the right framework so that you can make consistent decisions throughout your investing life. And it takes work consistently bringing in new data and filtering out the bad data. There's a lot of data that you can get, but it's about what you should be paying attention to, and that's what we're here to help you with. Now, we're going to touch on the market performance as well as run down some show topics, but as always, we're going to get to our first listener question now.
2: Hi, Justin. It's Steve. I'm calling today about KD Home, ticker symbol KBH. I know you guys used to own some home builders, so I was just wondering how you feel about the sector right now, and specifically KB Homes. Um, They got a low PE, small dividend. Just wondering what you think about the company. Thank you. Bye.
1: All right, looking at Pulte. And after hours, Pulte did announce earnings. They're down slightly on that earnings announcement. It closed around 76 and change. After hours, were at about 75 and change. So down a very small amount. Now, you're right. We did own one of their competitors for a time. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me. I had brought up the competitor. KB Holmes, excuse me. It closed the day right around 48 and change. Now we're at 47 and change. So also down slightly. But it is starting to roll over, and you are correct. We own one of its larger competitors, and we owned it for a lot of last year and most of this year up until, let's see, when did we sell that? That was in mid-August after it f- broke the the recent uh 20-day moving average, and it's down a little bit since we sold it but not a whole lot but what you can see what you're seeing in the housing sector overall is it got very overbought a lot of it was lack of positioning i think a lot of short covering people using that ptsd of 08 oh interest rates are up housing market's gonna crash i'm gonna short home builders and everyone's got it wrong because they're not understanding the current dynamics the dynamics are different than 08 Drastically different. And so the home builders are actually doing very, very well. Their market share is doubled and some markets tripled from pre pandemic levels because we know people are stuck in their home and their 3% mortgage. They're not listing their homes. And so the marginal supply is coming from those new homes. And so the new home builders are doing very, very well. However, the momentum has slowed. And I think the main issue here is that the job market is starting to weaken. It's one thing to do well because of a lack of competition from the existing home market, but it's another thing to do well in an environment where more and more people are losing their jobs or worried about losing their jobs because people will not make big-ticket purchases Either way, for an existing home or a new home. Now, they're still able to buy down rates and get them to reasonable levels and and compete against the existing home market. But as rates go up, that becomes more expensive to buy those rates down significantly. So When it comes to KB Homes, you're seeing earnings projections go down 29% this year from $9.09 last year to $6.43. And that's still well above the 2019 levels of 2 dollars but I don't like that recent trend. So I was bullish on home builders. I am now at a point where I'm probably neutral to, to slightly bearish just because of the trajectory of the jobs market. Now, don't... Don't get me wrong, does doesn't mean that I think the housing market is going to crash. I don't. We're still undersupplied of new homes, and uh, but there are some dynamics going forward that probably will weaken the market somewhat. And I don't think the environment for home builders will be as good over the next couple of years as it had been over the past year or so. So with that being said, I wouldn't be buying KB homes at this time the technicals are weak and they just started to get weak and typically when that happens after a big run it takes a while for that correction to fully manifest itself and I'd be patient on it all right we have a lot of ground to cover over the next 45 minutes time permitting we're going to touch on a lot of topics one is in regards to Bank stocks, should you be optimistic about bank stocks? Same analysts say so, and I'll give you my take. Also, we're going to touch a bit on labor productivity in the midst of the United Auto Workers strike. What is that looking like for workers and corporations, and how does that feed into the potential for a resolution here and broader strikes across the economy? Also, the SEC is cracking down on deceptive fund products. I wanted to get to that yesterday. Didn't have time, so hopefully we we'll get to that today. And then lastly, the Fed is sounding alarm on hedge funds shorting treasuries in a big way. And could that mean a shortcoming rally in treasuries at the right time? So, we're going to look at that topic as well. We also have some voice bank questions to play. One is in regards to Chesapeake Energy and Toro Company. Now, let's take a look at the market overall today. Today was Fed Day. Happy Fed Day for everyone out there. And Jerome Powell basically came out, and the median dot plot for the rest of the year is that there'd be one more hike. So, that's the base case for the Fed. However, there was some rhetoric in the press conference that basically said, "Hey, we're going to be careful that was the that was the wording mean be careful in raising rates too aggressively, so they kind of straddled the fence here they didn't outright saying go full bore in saying, hey, we're, we're hawkish, we're focused only on inflation, they started the rhetoric of pulling that back a little bit. Just a little bit. Not dramatically, but that's how the Fed works. They work slowly. They don't sit there and change their, their tune drastically in one meeting. It's an iterative process. And that's what you should expect. And so that's what the market overall uh, said today. That's what the reaction was. You had gold up, although it did pull back. Dollar was up. And the growth side of the market certainly was the one that were hurt the most. Large cap growth down over 1%, 1 1.2%. Small cap growth down about 1%. Large cap value only down 0.31%, mid cap value down only 0.3%. Large caps were down 91 basis points. Small caps down 77 basis points. Mid caps to the best, down only 43 basis points. So very interesting day in the markets and reaction. Uh, Overall, I still say we're in this kind of soft spot in the market. So, don't expect or please expect more volatility as we move our way into October. All right. Now, as we go to a break, mind you that to check out our new Invest Talk classroom series. It's streaming now on YouTube. And the next episode is on our cryptocurrency deep dive, episode seven. It's a complex subject, and there are aspects that must be considered. And in today's environment, the crypto scene, in some cases, has been hijacked by bad actors who have turned it. Into more of a casino. And there are a lot of risks involved, not just price fluctuations near term, but full safety of your assets. So learn more about cryptocurrency by heading over to YouTube and searching the Invest Talk Classroom series. And now my phone lines are open, waiting for your questions at 888 99 Chart.
3: When listener questions are played on the Invest Talk podcast, how do you guys
2: determine a value
3: stock? The caller voices are amplified many thousands of times.
2: Just wanted to get your opinion on JP Morgan and BAC. How do you see this uh, looking forward? I'm 25 years old and have
1: a question about retirement funds.
3: And the unbiased answers from Justin Klein.
1: That's why it's trading so cheap, because there's a lot of regulatory risk. And Steve Beasley.
2: I, I kind of like it here. If I was going to buy Tyson Food, this is where I'd buy it.
3: The stock market is constantly changing, and serious investors know that they need to modify their portfolio assets to fit the times. And now, with more than 50 million downloads, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley reaffirm their commitment to providing unbiased finance and investment guidance
1: here on InvestTalk. 888-99-CHART. Let's go talk to Chris. He is in Maine. He wants to talk about O, Realty Income.
2: Yeah. Hey, Justin. Thanks for the call. Appreciate uh, everything you guys do.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, kind of funny, actually. Originally, I was planning on calling about uh, a position I have in Barrett Gold and ask mm-hmm. about that, but uh, I think I'm just going to keep holding that for a bit. Mm-hmm. And I used to own O, got rid of it, made some a uh, little bit of cash on it, and I've just been watching it go down, down, down. And I was wondering... Uh, if you think in this environment, if it's still you know pretty risky, but given its history, if you think it's one of the more uh, solid realty ones to get into out there.
1: Yeah, I mean, the issue with a lot of the REITs is less to do with the assets and more to do with the balance sheet. One interesting little wrinkle on the REIT side is that because they have to pass 90% of their income on shareholders uh, because remember these are pass through entities so they don't pay any taxes on the corporate level but what that means is that there's not a lot of money to shore up their balance sheet they can only keep 10% of that to pay down debt and and kind of keep their their balance sheet right sized and when they have a good amount of debt and they may have to roll that debt now they have to do it at a higher rate that's going to cut into their overall profitability and then uh, maybe the the dividend uh, overall so I think that's the issue here. They have about $20 billion in long-term debt on a $38 billion market cap. And that's one issue here. And the other is that it's in the retail space. And, and while retail properties are probably doing better than, say, office, there are still pockets of weakness and trouble. And, and, and the once again, the, the good thing is that uh, they are mainly focused on the retail side, but they do have some office properties uh, and, and others that, that that may be in trouble. Um, so overall, it's well diversified. You have properties in 49 different states uh, across 250 different tenants across 47 different industries. So it is it's diversified, but I don't like the the trend in the stock. It's very very weak. Let's look at the relative strength. 23. It's pretty low. It's pretty bad. So, I would be patient on it. I wouldn't be excited about getting this getting back into this until there's some sort of technical strength here, and that looks nowhere close. So, I'm passing on O. All right, this is Invest Talk. we remember that you can call anytime and leave your questions on the Invest Talk voice bank, or if you're listening via the live stream on AM 1220 radio in the Silicon Valley area, you can call right now at 888-99-chart.
3: Every Invest Talk podcast is made better by your questions. So don't forget to call. And if you've never called, Justin and Steve are waiting now for your finance and investment questions. Invest Talk,
1: 888 99 Chart. Now, our main focus point today looks in the story behind this question Is it time to be optimistic on banking stocks? Now, the month of August bond rating agencies downgraded many of the regional banks and they pointed to rising interest rates and issues in the commercial real estate market. Now, the regional banking index is down 25% year to date and on pace for the worst year on record since it was put together in 2006. And so that was worse than 08, think about that. Now, regional bank stocks, gained as much as 35% recently up until August before those downgrades and second quarter earnings beat forecasts. So they've clawed back a lot of those losses, but like I said, still down 25% year to date. Now the issue for the bears is that the fed has kind of come to the rescue in a lot of ways. They, they, deployed their bank term funding program, the BTFP. And that closed the the gap between the book value of these securities, mostly treasuries that they bought at low interest rates, and the market value today in a higher interest rate environment. So they're able to exchange these bonds. Many are trading maybe at... 75 cents on the dollar, 80 cents on the dollar, which isn't a huge decline for bonds. That happens. But when you're talking about a bank balance sheet, that can be a big number. But they can exchange it with the Fed and get basically $100 back. Now, there's some costs for that, et cetera. But it fills that capital gap. And if banks don't have capital – Guess what? They can't lend. And that's why the Fed did this, because they don't want the Fed the, the these banks, especially the regional banks, to stop lending. Now, the debate here whether or not banks are, are good buys really relies a lot on profits not just today, but going forward into next year, a potentially recessionary environment. And if you look at most recent profit numbers, interest income fell at most banks in the second quarter. And the net interest margin, the difference between the amount that banks pay for their funds, their deposits, and what it collects on loans and other assets, that also fell as well. So a rising interest rate environment, which typically most say is good for banks, has not been because of those rising funding costs. And being stuck with a lot of long-duration, low-yielding assets. Now, the good thing is that most banks, even the regional banks, haven't seen the capital flight or the deposit flight that a lot of the Silicon Valley banks of the world and the ones that failed in the first quarter that they had. So those fears are largely not there anymore. Wells Fargo... So its deposit uh, uh, rate was only 1.13%. Bank of America, 1.24%. So the cost of their funds is going up, but it still remains relatively low. There's a lot of sticky assets there. Now, on the other side is your typical worry with banks, which is credit quality. And it's getting a little worse, true. Delinquencies are up from pre-pandemic levels. But it's pretty minor. Even the banks that the S P and other rating agencies have flagged, like Valley National Bank Corp. Commerce Bank Shares, Zion Bank Corp. These companies have a decent have decent exposure to office leases, for example, or office buildings. But once again, they're still well below pre pandemic levels. And well below Their loan loss loss reserves. For example, Valley has $460 million in loan loss reserves, nearly double the amount of their trouble loan book. So the trouble loan book would have to double for them to increase their charge-offs. And many banks are saying that the delinquencies on their loans are still relatively low. Now, obviously, this could get worse. You could have more delinquencies in office and other commercial real estate, but that would have to have a pretty bad economy. You'd have to have even more layoffs than you're you're seeing recently. It's pretty minor so far, but obviously that could accelerate. And that's why I say there are analysts that will say, oh, you should be optimistic on bank stocks. And I kind of disagree. I don't, I'm not optimistic on bank stocks, especially the smaller banks because of the rising cost of the deposits and their inability to really lend. And they're not lending nearly as much to bridge that gap, to grow their net interest margins and then the risks in their balance sheet. And so, yes, the Fed has helped them and it will keep them relatively solvent, but it's at the cost of profitability. And that's my 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 biggest worry. Is more about their net interest margins, less about their charge offs and their delinquencies and going and through going through some major default cycle because of inflation. Inflation, when prices go up across the economy, it's just easier to pay your rents and pay your uh, pay your loans back, etc. And that's why a major major default cycle is probably unlikely, but higher cost of funds will drive profitability lower. So I disagree with analysts here that bank stocks are are right are, are improving. I would avoid them. Alright, we're going to a break. Give me a call at 99 chart. Let's say you've been thinking about learning a new language. Okay. Why? I mean how would it come in handy? And where would you want to use it? Could it be that you have an upcoming international trip? Redeem your 50% off now at rosettastone.com/slash today.
2: One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk Podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk Podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888-99-CHART. Uh, yeah, hi, this is James. I had a question in regards to an energy company, which you're currently discussing on the radio. Chesapeake Energy, I, I think it's a very good company. It's From what I see, it's, it, it's got a very, really, really affordable, undervalued price if I'm looking at the right metrics. So I was interested to see what your take was on it. Uh, Thank you so much. Uh, I do think it's a really good company. It has a great dividend. I know they had recently sold uh, their Eagle Ford shale positions to, I think, Silver Bow, and they did some other sales recently. I'm not 100% sure what their strategic reasoning was for that. I think that what I was reading is that they just wanted to read focus on optimizing their their, their business. Uh, I'm, I'm not 100% sure what the reasoning is for those sales. But I think it's a great company. I just wanted to know what your take was on it. Thank you. All
1: right, this is Chesapeake Energy and is a domestic EMP company here in the U.S. at $11 billion market cap, 2.7% dividend yield. Let's check out that dividend. It is, it is been cut recently however it was $3.16 in the fall of last year now it's down to only 57 cents so that dividend has retrenched a lot of that i'm sure has to do with the earnings and being tied to earnings earnings in 2021 were $33.47 then $17.22 this year and down to $4.38 sorry 30 17.22 last year Four dollars and thirty-eight cents expected this year down seventy-five percent. Now that's my issue here is yes, a lot of companies, a lot of energy companies are earning less than they did last year simply because prices are down a bit. All oh, that is reversing some here as of late. But 75%, that's a lot. You know, I'm I'm pulling up companies that we own for our clients, and they're having a dip back, but closer to the High teens, maybe into the low thirty percent range, but not seventy-five percent, and that's my issue, issue with Chesapeake. It's a fine company; it operates fairly well, but I just think there's better opportunities out there than Chesapeake. And technically, if you look at the relative strength, it's only thirty-nine. Okay, it's only thirty-nine. The XLE has a which is the energy ETF, broad-based energy ETF. That's an eighty-five. with relative strength. And if you look at like the OIH, the oil services companies, that is 94 on relative strength. So it's drastically underperforming its competitors. And it makes sense. Earnings expectations are retrenching dramatically. So do I hate it? No, but there's a lot better opportunities in the oil space than Chesapeake. So, Look elsewhere, but stay in the energy space because uh, I think that is a good place to be buying on any pullbacks. All right, let's touch a bit on labor productivity. Labor productivity. We know we're in the midst of a United Auto Workers strike, and their demands, you could argue, are justified. You know, CEOs are making a lot more money. Companies are making record profits, and they gave up a lot during the financial crisis to help these companies stay afloat, post the bailout, and that's the argument for the workers. Now, the argument for the auto companies is that hey, the productivity, meaning. The quantity and quality of the products that these workers are putting out, not looking so hot. And now we're not talking about, and this is broadly across the economy, but basically since 09, labor productivity has only grown 0.2% a year, 0.2% a year. And as you would imagine, that's pretty low, much lower than the overall economy, Workers in Europe, Asia, except Japan. Japan is the only one that has w- worse labor productivity, but that's because their demographics are terrible. A lot of old people, and the older you get, you're not going to be very productive in a, in a factory, for example. Now, we do produce a lot more difficult products than you see overseas. Electric cars, batteries, power generation products, commercial aircraft, semiconductors, etc. And we still lead the world in design, innovation. But as typical, it's cheaper and more productive to do that overseas, to produce those things overseas. And both this Biden administration along with the Trump administration they wanted to reverse that outsourcing through tariffs, subsidies, other government programs, you know, the kind of carrot and stick approach. Trump was more the stick and Biden's a little bit more the carrot, even though he still, you know, kept a lot of those tariffs. Now in motor vehicle manufacturing itself, the productivity picture is pretty bad. From 2012 until Last year, productivity, it was down 32%. Now, a lot of that had to do with pandemics, so it's hard to get a clear picture. But it's pretty obvious that workers are not pumping out the same type of products that we had before. Now, productivity does – it's a lot of factors that go into it. It's not just how hard people are working. It's management decisions. Maybe they make bad decisions on how factories are set up and what products to produce, how the supply chain – uh, manifests itself, public infrastructure, regulation. For example, U.S. manufacturers have a lot less robots than the Asian counterparts, Asian producers. And only two of the 10 most dependable brands ranked by J.D. Power are U.S. made. So, that's the issue here: is There's the balance between, yes, is it expensive Are are workers probably not paid enough? Yeah, they're probably not paid enough. But they're also not as productive as elsewhere in the world. Or at least that growth, that gap has actually gotten worse over the past decade plus. And there's a lot of absenteeism. Just don't show up to work. So as we want to reshore our manufacturing... I think one effort the government probably needs to focus on is training. Think about it young people do you do a lot of young people want to go work in a factory? probably not, and the fact that you're not training them to do so and force not i don't say forcing but encouraging people to go get four year degrees, pile on a lot of debt, and how many people get Edu- an education to go work in a factory in a f- for a university. almost none unless you're in engineering or something like that and that's uh, what you want to do maybe but the vast majority are not. And so I think that's the issue here. it's there's the carrot and the stick approach which both have their merits, but there's also the hey, we have the best workers for you. And it takes a good education system, not just on the four-year university side, but more broadly, vocational training, for example. And if we can get that, then maybe productivity will go up, and then workers will be justifiably paid more. So they'll probably strike sh- a balance here. And we'll see where that ends up. Now let's pivot back to the Best Talk Voice Bank for a question that came in earlier on eight 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 ninety nine chart. Hello, Stephen Justin. I would like your opinion about TTC, Toro. Is it good by now? Thank you. All right. Toro, it's a very well-run company. We've owned this for a while before this recent drop and uh, well before this recent drop. So we're still up on it. But it had it has had a major drop, uh, and it had to do with the CEO basically saying, hey, demand is is struggling. And what they do is they make landscaping equipment. They're basically the best in the biz. They're innovative. They have efficient manufacturing. And they're just very well run. Mid-cap name, about $8.2 billion market cap. Modest debt, only about a $1 billion of debt on their balance sheet. Now trading enterprise value EBIT about 15 times. Historically, that's closer to 18. So it's cheap on those metrics. And I think this is a good buying opportunity on this dip for a long-term hold because that return in equity is very strong. Now, right now, it's the lowest it's been in a while, but historically, it's in the mid-30s. Now, it's 26. 26 is still good. Now, major, major support. Let me pull that up here. Major support is going to be right around $74 per share. Now, we're at 79. So, there could be a little more downside from here. But that's where the major support will be, and that's where I would probably want to pick up more. So we like Toro uh, for a long-term hold, hitting some near-term snags, but overall, the business is solid. All right. Now, we're more than halfway through the month of September, and guess what that means? The third quarter is winding down fast, and we're entering the fourth quarter, a time when people kind of reassess, what they've been doing, reassess the markets, re- reassess their strategy, and it's about fitting your strategy for the times. And, of course, I encourage you to reach out to myself or Steve at our company, KPP Financial, where we practice parallel investing, which means we invest right alongside our clients, and we provide unbiased guidance, both on and off air. So I encourage you to head over to investstock.com, Click on the button in the top right screen that says portfolio review, fill out, out and we will get right back to you. We can schedule time to go over your portfolio, understand the risk that you're taking, what are the style factors? Are you leaning on the growth side or the value side? Are you too much in one particular sector? Are you too much in one particular name? Does it fit your ultimate goals? These are the things that we discuss on these calls. So the sooner you reach out, the sooner we can go over all those things and give you some Good advice on the direction to take it. Maybe you do that personally. Maybe you hire us. Maybe you find somebody else. Maybe you just go buy an annuity. Who knows, right? Everyone's situation's different and that's why we do these calls. All right. Next up, more questions to your questions or more answers to your questions, excuse me. So hang on. In today's world, a variety
0: of factors are affecting the stock markets. Serious investors know Building a secure financial future requires hard work and determination. That's why now, more than ever, when it comes to the planning, execution, and maintenance of your portfolio, you need Invest InvestTalk is a free download. Your participation makes it unique. Don't forget to call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. Hi, Steve and Justin. I'm calling in with a question
3: on ETF. It's the Vanguard Short-Term Inflation Protected Securities Index Fund, VTIP. I was looking to buy this for my retirement account, which I think I'm maybe retiring in maybe about five years or so. Would this be a good time to get into this with interest rates rising? Or is it better to wait until rates go heading back down? So I just wanted to get your opinion overall, and um, I'll be listening to the answer on your show. Thank you. All
1: right, this is the Vanguard Short-Term Inflation Protected Securities ETF, and as you imagine by the name, it's buying very short-term tips. and. It's paying you a particular yield. This year, this fund is up 2.31%, 2.131%. So you're not going to it's not going to boom or bust last year. It was down, but down 2.96%. So and this includes the dividend. Okay. It includes the distribution. Now the distribution, I will say it's going to be all over the place. Okay. You're not going to get A consistent amount. Uh, It depends on where inflation is, et cetera. So it's not paying you this consistent number. So understand that. Now, if interest rates are going up, this is a better place to be than a lot of other bonds, right? Because the duration is relatively short. Now, it still has some duration. 2.6 years is the effective duration, 2.64 years. So it's not... Like, I rather own if I'm looking for short term and l- no duration risk. There are ones you're buying only one, two, three month treasuries, which are pretty much no duration risk there. Whereas this, better than buying the B and D, the bond index. That's I think that's closer to six years, seven years duration. So it's better. It's shorter term, but I wouldn't say it's ultra short term. So if interest going up this will still kind of trend lower. Now, would I rather own this than outright tips? Probably. I would. Because if you look at like TIP, let's go over to TIP, which is the iShares Tips Bond ETF. Let's go look at the portfolio there. That duration is, take a look, loading, they got duration 6.75 years. So I like that this better than just straight like a TIP. But if you have interest going up, I rather own that short, ultra short term Treasury bond fund. All right. This is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein. We have one goal here each and every weekday is to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom, which we will help you with after this final break. So get your questions in now at eight 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 ninety nine chart.
3: Justin Klein is here and ready to take your calls live. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART.
2: Hi, Stephen. Justin. I'd love to get your opinion on General Mills, stock symbol GIS. Looks like it's trading at 52-week lows, long history of, of dividends. Seems to make money. I'm not seeing anything concerning uh, other than stock price. Wanted to get your opinion, see if you thought it was a good long-term hold, and see what you thought a good entry point would be. Thanks.
1: All right, looking at General Mills, and what you're seeing here is their business is definitely declining. Free cash flow in the fall of 2020 was over $3 billion. Now we're just over two billion so free cash flow has fallen by a third basically back to well below pre-pandemic levels pre-pandemic it was closer to about two and a half billion so that's one issue here earnings are and that that's that's one problem here is earnings look like they're higher. 2019, they made $3.22, supposed to make $4.48 this year, although those estimates continue to come down. But if you look at the underlying business, there's... Maybe some shenanigans going on because the cash flow is not meeting that new high level. It's actually much, much lower. Operating cash flow has fallen from $3.7 billion all the way to $2.7 billion over the past couple of years. And if you look at operating margins, we're at 15%, and it peaked out in early 2021 around 18%. Now, the five-year average is 17%. You go back, let's say, a decade and this is in the low end of margins. And you have to think about this. Consumer goods have small margins. And think of all that goes into these products, these packaged goods. You have obviously the raw commodities. So the, those prices are going up. And then you have to manufacture them. You're probably not manufacturing this in a third-world country. You're manufacturing in a developed country, maybe here in the U.S. And costs cost of those workers are going up. Then you have to transport the goods. The cost of the transportation goes up. So this is a perfect example of how in an inflationary environment, consumer staple companies, food companies, they tend to not do nearly as well. There are five sectors that typically do well in an inflationary environment. Energy, basic materials. Those are one and two tier one tier two would be financials and industrials. Industrials usually better than financials, but they tend to do fairly well. And then the next tier would be actually real estate. Every other sector typically doesn't do very well in an inflationary environment because either higher interest rates or higher inflation simply wreaks havoc on their business. And, Consumer staples are one of them. So uh, the technicals are very bad. relative strength here, 17. I see nothing about the technicals that said it's going to turn around. So I'm passing on general mills until I see it cross above the 50-day moving average, which is up around $70 per share. Now it's at 65. So it's on the sidelines for me. All right, lastly, let's touch on a potential rule coming down the pipe in regards to the name rule by the SEC. And... There's a new proposal as of last Wednesday, and it's basically updating what is, was mainly focused on just the terms bonds and equity, and it updates it for a much broader range of fund names, including ones like ESG. So... It's basically saying if you are saying you are X, Y, and Z, if your fund name is X, Y, and Z, and you are not living up to it, if 80% of your positions aren't living up to that label, you have to change your name. And so what they're basically saying is that it's overdue for an update because there's so many other names, bond, uh, funds used to just be called. you know what. Uh, uh, in- equity and income, or you know, high yield bond fund, or whatever. Right now, there's so many thematic funds that you could be buying something. And you might think you're getting that theme, but in reality, are you really? And how do you prove that? And so, I think this is a. I think the SEC has been doing a great job of updating rules to protect investors a lot more. Now, are they getting through exactly what? I would envision no, but at least they're tackling the right problems. A lot of people fall prey to this. They just buy this thematic fund and they leave it up to the managers to say exactly what that means. They don't do any investigation and uh, it's good on the SEC that they are starting to try to fix this. So, applauding them. Now, I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve and I thank you for listening, and we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review and check out our new Invest Talk Classroom series over on our YouTube channel on the new cryptocurrency, Deep Dive, Episode 7. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night.
0: Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial.